March 21st, 1748. John Newton was a young sailor on a slave trading ship in the middle of a week-long North Atlantic storm, which left him with little hope of surviving. In fact, on the 11th day of the storm, Newton tied himself to the helm of the ship just to keep it on course. And he was there for 11 straight hours, which gave him lots of time to put his life in perspective, which, by the way, was just as ruined and wrecked as this ship. Because Newton had a reputation for profanity, for wickedness, and for debauchery that shocked even the sailors. In fact, he was known as the great blasphemer, which is saying quite a bit when all of your friends are sailors. Now, John Newton had a mother who prayed for him since he was just a child and faithfully taught him the scriptures. So in the midst of this raging storm, Proverbs 1, 24 to 31 came to his mind, which absolutely terrified him because it says, wisdom cries, how long will you scoffers delight in scoffing and you fools hate knowledge? If only you would turn from your wicked ways, I would pour out my spirit on you. But because you refuse to listen, I will laugh at your calamity. And mock when terror strikes you in a great storm, and your distress is like a whirlwind. Then you will call on me, but I will not answer. Then you will seek me, but you will not find me. So as soon as a storm passed, Newton found a Bible, and he began to read day and night, night and day. And as a result, his whole life radically changed because he was overwhelmed by the fact that he could be forgiven of the most wicked and vile of sins, no matter how big or how small or how many, that he could be washed clean, that he could be made perfect by the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross. So Newton came to faith and at the age of 39 became a minister of the gospel and faithfully pastored for the next 43 years of his life and, and wrote hymns including Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton lived to be 82 years old, but he never ceased to be amazed by grace that God saved him and God transformed him that he might walk in faithful obedience to the Lord Jesus. In fact, at the end of his life, he would often say, my memory's nearly gone, but I still remember these two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Those two things are on full display this morning, that we're all just wretched sinners, but that Christ is a great Savior who can pay for all our sins, no matter how big or how small or how many. He washes us clean, saved, sanctified, and made perfect, but also transforms our lives by putting his law on our hearts and on our minds and causing us to walk in his ways, persevering in the midst of difficulty and looking forward to the great reward of an eternal lasting city where all God's people will dwell in God's glorious presence. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is on page 1006. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I encourage you to have my outline right there tucked in your Bible, following along as we walk through our passage this morning, Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. I recognize that we're jumping back into the book of Hebrews this morning, so let me remind you of the context, because it's helpful to remember that Hebrews is a sermon, which is written down and read to Jewish Christians who are struggling in the midst of trials that they're experiencing and are anticipating this great persecution that is coming. So they're being tempted to abandon the salvation that they've already heard and believed in the Lord Jesus. So they're tempted to exchange the old covenant or the new covenant for the old, the superior for the inferior, the real thing for a shadow. 
they're tempted to abandon what they've learned about the Lord Jesus and return to the old covenant. And so the author is pleading with them not to do so, but instead to draw near to God in true faith. So he argues with them that Jesus is better. Jesus is, a better, is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priests. Because Jesus is a sinless, eternal high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, who mediates a better covenant, offers a better sacrifice, and secures an infinitely better salvation. So he says, put your faith in Christ, not in lesser things, not in inferior things, and certainly not in the shadow of things. Look at what he says. Follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. The author says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. Every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, as we jump in, I want to make sure that you're clear on this word perfect, because it's clearly a favorite of the author's. In fact, let me remind you of how often he uses it. If you would, go ahead and flip back to Hebrews 7, verse 11. Trying to define this word perfect by looking at its context in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews 7 verse 11. There the author says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest after the order of Melchizedek? Then if you skip down or skip forward to Hebrews 9 verse 9, he uses a word again. Hebrews 9 verse 9, the author says, according to this arrangement, now he's talking about the Levitical priesthood and the day of atonement, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In contrast, look at chapter 9 verse 14. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience or perfect our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now move forward to our text this morning. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Last but not least, skip down to verse 14. This is all part of our text this morning. He says, for by a single offering, talking about Christ's death on the cross and his once for all sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what does the author mean when he uses this word perfection? Well, he means the forgiveness of sins being reconciled to God, restored and in a right relationship, which has an already and not yet component. So it includes the ongoing work of sanctification that is absolutely guaranteed and the perfection that's absolutely necessary for God's people to enter God's presence now and for all eternity. And it's clear according to verse 1, that the Old Testament sacrifices offered year after year, every year, were incapable of making wretched sinners like you and me and John Newton perfect before a holy God. Which is why the language being used here is that of a shadow in comparison to the substance, to the real thing. So the Old Testament sacrifice offered by the Old Testament priests were A, just a shadow of the coming Christ. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about the inadequacy of a shadow. Because the shadow of a dog cannot bite you. The shadow of a knife cannot stab you. And the shadow of the coming Christ cannot save you 
cannot sanctify you and cannot perfect you because it's not the real thing. And in the case of negative examples like a dog or a knife, you're very glad that it's not the real thing. But in the case of our salvation, we absolutely need the real thing. We need the substance, not the shadow. Because the substance, the Lord Jesus, is the only one able to make perfect those who draw near to him. And that's evident and obvious because B, the sacrifices offered year after year, were insufficient. Verse 2 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But instead, in these sacrifices, there's a constant reminder of sins every year, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the fundamental problem with the law and its sacrifices is crystal clear, isn't it? It can't perfect those drawing near to God. Because if perfection were possible, the sacrifices would have ceased. They would have stopped and the process would have been over a long time ago. But they didn't cease to be offered because they didn't cleanse the conscience, because they didn't take away sins. Otherwise, the people would have been assured in the depth of their souls, in their conscience, that forgiveness was accomplished because the guilt would have been gone. But it wasn't. Instead, year after year, for thousands of years, sacrifices were made. So rather than being cleansed and being purified, it was a yearly reminder that sin still remained. Now you might be asking, why is that true? Meaning, why weren't the Levitical sacrifices able to cleanse the conscience? Well, verse 4 tells us because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, unfortunately, the author doesn't clarify that for us, but the assertion seems clear, especially when contrasted with Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, that there's no way animals could fully and finally atone for people's sins. Why? Because they're animals. They're not humans. They don't even realize why they're being slain or have any understanding of sin. And they're certainly not volunteering to die in somebody's place. And yet their death was not a mistake. Their death was not contrary to the will of God, but instead was used to point forward to the Lord Jesus, his blood, his death, and his once for all sacrifice to cleanse us from sin. Finally, fully, and completely. So the shadow points forward to the substance. And the substance is so much better. You would never exchange the substance for the shadow. That would be unthinkable. You know, the other day, I had this fantastic conversation with a World War II veteran who was telling me all about the difficulty of going off to war and how he took a black and white picture of his high school sweetheart with him and how it became this item, this is his words, how it became this item of prenuptial worship, this picture, because he had his sweetheart with him in this picture. So prenuptial, meaning he wanted to marry her, but right now it's just a high school sweetheart. So prenuptial worship for him because he looked at it all the time. Whenever he was free, and it became his portable hope that literally enabled him to endure the wickedness and the horror of war until he returned home and could finally be back in her arms. Now, let me ask you this. How absurd would it be if suddenly, after they were married, he appeared before his wife holding that old black and white picture and said to her, darling, I've really missed your picture. So I've decided to go back to the picture rather than to you because I'm so attached to the picture and value it so much more than the woman who's right in front of him. 
And then he walked away, hugging and kissing the picture rather than his beloved wife. Do you hear what I'm saying? The shadow is not anywhere close to the substance. It's absurd to value the shadow over the substance because the shadow of the once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross cannot save you. It doesn't have that ability. Instead, the shadow is what points to the substance. And that substance is number two. Christ once for all sacrifice for our sins. Follow along as I read verses 5 to 14. The author says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, notice how verse 5 begins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he, Christ, said. And then he quotes Psalm 40. So notice how the author of Hebrews attributes Psalm 40 to the Lord Jesus, which puts an unbelievably high value on the word of God. Because it's exactly that, the word of God, or more specifically, the word of Christ, which is incredible. And why exactly does the author quote Psalm 40? Well, because it highlights, A, Christ's obedience to the Father's command and the Son's willingness to perfectly obey that command, or as he says in the psalm, to do God's will. Because verse 40 says, sacrifices and offerings you, the Father, have not desired, but a body, so a physical body, you have prepared for me for the Son. So the Father ordained the incarnation of Christ and prepared for him a physical body. Not to offer sacrifices, because verse 6 tells us God takes no delight in burnt offerings or sin offerings. How does Jesus respond? Verse 7, then I said, so the son says to the father, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. So make sure that you get this. The author is declaring that God the father sent God the son into the world not to offer sacrifices, but to be the once for all sacrifice for our sins. And all of that, according to the author of Hebrews, was already declared all throughout the entire Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 53 verse 4 tells us that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Tells us that he was smitten and afflicted. By who? By God. So it was God's will that Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions and that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. God is the one who put on him the chastisement that brought us peace and the wounds that brought our healing. And Christ was pleased to do it. That's what the author is arguing. Because in verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will. I have come to do God's will. So Jesus is absolutely on board, willing and able to carry out God's great plan of redemption, which is number one, the obedience of Christ to do God's will. 
Now, I don't know about you, but as soon as I hear that language, to do God's will, I cannot help but think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Because you need to understand that doing God's will is not easy. Willing to do something is radically different than easy to do something, right? I mean, think with me about Luke 22, right? The author of Luke tells us that it, is, it was so agonizing that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood as he pleaded with the Father, if you are willing, please let this cup, what cup? The cup of God's wrath pass by me. Nevertheless, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but thy will be done. So he gets up and he walks the difficult path to the cold wooden cross of Calvary. And Paul in Philippians 2 clarifies that that was his obedience. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What exactly did he accomplish? Well, verse 9 tells us that Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. So Jesus does away with the old covenant in order to establish the new covenant. And that by that will, meaning Christ's obedience, obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, we, those who believe in Jesus, have been sanctified through the offering, notice, of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So this is number two, the sufficiency of Christ to sanctify God's people. Tom Schreiner is so helpful here. He says, Jesus' self-sacrifice signaled that the day of animal sacrifices was over and a new era, a new arrangement, and a new covenant between God and man had begun. So the former covenant passed away like the setting of a sun and a new day has risen in Jesus whose once for all sacrifice is effective to finally and fully and completely atone for for sin. So God does not look on believers as guilty or defiled, but as pure, clean, and forgiven in Christ once for all. So number one, Christ is obedient to God's will, which he did when he offered himself up on the cross. And number two, Christ's death is sufficient to sanctify or to perfect God's people for all time. Which is why Christ sat down. And it's why Christ is still seated. Waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Look again at what the author says. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now before we think through B, Christ's single sacrifice, let me explain the language that we're being given here in verses 10 and verse 14. Because verse 10 uses the language of believers having been sanctified. And verse 14 uses the language, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Which is a little confusing. I mean, how can you say believers have been sanctified and believers are being sanctified? So two issues here. The first is actually the tense of the verb. So the question is, is sanctification done or is sanctification an ongoing process? Have we been sanctified, done, or are we being sanctified, ongoing? The answer is, in the book of Hebrews, believers have been sanctified, meaning they've been justified before God, forgiven of their sin, and cleansed. 
Sanctification has the cleansing language once and for all. So the best way, I believe, to read verse 14 is to use the phrase from verse 10, that by a single sacrifice, Christ has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. Once and done, fully, finally, and completely perfected, justified, and sanctified or cleansed before God. Now that's troublesome, I know, because the second issue is, as soon as you hear that word sanctified or sanctification, we immediately think of progressive sanctification. So the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. But that's the definition according to Paul and his New Testament letters. The problem is Paul didn't write Hebrews. So we need to understand what the author of Hebrews means in verse 14 when he says, for by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Which, because of the context, has everything to do with the day of atonement and the constant references to sacrifice. So in that context, having been perfected or sanctified, both point to the reality that because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for sin, those who believe in Jesus are justified, to use Paul's language, forgiven and in a right relationship with God, or cleansed now and for all eternity. Which doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle with sin every day. The author of Hebrews just wouldn't use the word sanctification to describe that ongoing battle against sin. Instead, he uses warnings and encouragement for us to press on, persevere, and draw near to God in full assurance, not throwing away our confidence or neglecting so great a salvation, but he would say looking forward to our great reward. So true believers in Christ are perfected before God and are sanctified from their sin because of what Christ has done once and for all, this glorious once for all single sacrifice for sin which is why Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. So with all that in place, let's look at number one, the ineffectiveness of the Old Testament priests. Now, I think this is so very helpful for you to understand. I mean, do you realize that there was no chair in the tabernacle? I mean, think about the importance of that. There's no chair in the tabernacle, no chair to be found anywhere. There was the Ark of the Covenant, there was the altar, the lampstand, the table, the bread, and the curtain. But there was no chair. Why is there no chair in the tabernacle? Because the high priest never sat down. And if you never sit down, then you don't need a chair to sit on. Instead, verse 11 says he stands. He stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. So he's constantly standing. He's constantly working. He's constantly sacrificing, constantly doing something that could never ever atone for sin, which means his work is never done. That's the ineffectiveness of the Old Testament priests, which is contrasted to number two, the effectiveness of Christ's single sacrifice. Notice verse 12. Notice how it begins. But that's a contrast. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Where does he sit down? at the right hand of God. Now, just think about the contrast. I mean, the priests were standing. Jesus is seated. The priests were working. Jesus is resting. The priests were constantly doing something that could never atone for sin. But Jesus, one offering, a single sacrifice, that atones for every sin, past, present, and future, and every sinner, past, present, and future, which is why he sat down. And it's why he's ruling and reigning at God's right hand right now. 
I mean, just pause for a moment and let that reality sink in. Are you here this morning worried about something? Maybe it's the difficulty, physical illness, cancer, loved one who's struggling. Maybe you're struggling with the direction that our country is heading. I hear that all the time. Hell in a handbasket, that's where we're going. This next generation, I can't tell you what's going on with them. Maybe it's China. Maybe it's Russia. Maybe you get nervous when those two guys are talking. I don't really like when they're talking. Why are they talking? What are they talking about? That makes me nervous. Let this verse sink in. Jesus is right now at God's right hand. And he is ruling and he is reigning. And he's not nervous. He's not pacing. He, he, he's not trying to figure this out. He's seated. He's resting. He's ruling. He's reigning. Right now at God's right hand. You know, in the ancient Near Eastern world, to sit at God's at a king's right hand was an unbelievable position of honor, and that was just for an earthly king. This is the ancient of days that we're talking about. So to sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, is to sit at the most powerful, most prestigious, most influential position in the entire universe. That's Christ's position. He's ruling and he's reigning at God's right hand. Look at his posture. He's not standing. He's sitting. Why is he sitting? Because the work is done. It's perfected. Now and forevermore. Fully, finally, and forever complete. Just like he said on the cross, it is finished. And as a result, he has perfected for all time. Those who believe in Jesus. We are perfected before God for all time. So in God's eyes, as a result of Christ's sacrifice, we are perfectly clean, perfectly pure, perfectly undefiled, unstained, and without blemish, washed clean by the blood of Christ, never to be cleansed again because there's no need to be cleansed again. You're perfectly clean. And oh, by the way, what is Christ doing now? Well, we know from Hebrews 7.25 that he ever lives to intercede for those who draw near to God through him. But look at verse 13. Verse 13 says he's waiting. So he's waiting from that time, from the time of his first single sacrifice for sin. So waiting since his death on the cross until the time when his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. When is that? It's when Christ returns. And when he makes all things right. So Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. To make his enemies a footstool. Finally and forever inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And do not respond to the good news of the gospel. So he's waiting. For that day. When he will fully and finally make all things right. Now, let's just pause and put that all together. Because the whole point of this letter, in context, is to assure these dear believers that their sins have been forgiven and that there's absolutely nowhere else they need to go to be reconciled to God or to be perfected for all time than to run to Jesus. He's the perfect, sinless, eternal high priest who's offered up himself once and for all to atone for sins and to perfect them for all time which is confirmed by the reality that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he ever lives to intercede on their behalf and is waiting patiently to make all things new and right in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will reign. That's what's being declared here. So here's the question. Do you believe that? 
Is that true for you? Do you recognize this morning that there is no other way to be forgiven of your sin? Jesus is the only way of salvation. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sin is the only way to be redeemed, restored, reconciled, and made perfect with a holy God. And this text, Hebrews 10, 14, guarantees the sufficiency of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice to perfect you for all time and to cleanse you from every sin that you've ever committed over the course of your life, looking backward in the present time and looking forward to the future. You know, I recently heard a story about Billy Graham's daughter and how she evangelized a woman on death row who was on death row for multiple murders. Now, as you can imagine, the woman had a very hard time believing that she could actually be forgiven of her sin. So Billy Graham's daughter used the analogy of a sandy ocean beach. Now, if you've ever walked along a beach, along the ocean, then you've seen all the holes that are made during low tide. So there's small holes made by the crabs. There's bigger holes made by the kids building sandcastles. And then there's these huge, massive holes made by machines dredging channels. But what happens to every one of those holes when the tide comes in? Every hole, no matter how big or how small or how many, are all covered by the water. And the next time that the tide goes out, the sand is perfectly smooth, washed clean, redeemed, and restored. Well, the same is true with the Lord Jesus. Because of his finished work on the cross and his once for all sacrifice, he can wash away all your sins. No matter how big or how small or how many, you can be forgiven, redeemed, restored, reconciled, and made perfect before a holy God for all time. I appeal to you. Acknowledge your sin before a holy God. Admit to him just how sinful you really are. The big, the small, the many. So that you can be washed clean, redeemed, restored, and reconciled to God. But that only happens when you repent and you believe in the Lord Jesus. And you commit to live your life in reckless abandon for his glory, honor, and praise. And how do we do that? By glorying in the forgiveness that is ours in the Lord Jesus, which motivates us to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus, doing God's will. Number three, the application of Christ's sacrifice. Look, look at where the author goes next. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, where exactly does the quote come from? Well, it comes from Jeremiah 31, which is all about the new covenant. 
Now remember the context because this letter is written written to Jewish believers who are being tempted to abandon the salvation that they've already heard and believed in Jesus. So tempted to exchange the new covenant for the old covenant, the superior for the inferior, the real thing for the shadow. They're tempted to run back to the shadow. So the author is pleading with them that the promise of the new covenant has already been accomplished. How has it been accomplished? Through Christ's once for all sacrifice for sin. So A, promise accomplished by Christ. How do we know that? Because there's no longer any offerings for sin. It's done. It's finished. Christ died. He was buried, risen, and ascended, and is currently seated at God's right hand. So there's no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because of the sufficiency of Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross. So promise accomplished by Christ, which means the promise B can now be applied to the believers. What exactly is that promise? Well, it's the promise that God has written his law on our hearts and minds, which means we are truly empowered by God's spirit to walk in God's ways. So he's given us a heart and a mind to learn God's word, love God's word, and live God's word. He's given us the ability to walk in obedience to him, all for his glory, honor, and praise, which is absolutely glorious because it means we can really actually be radically transformed from sinners into saints, from those who hate God to those who love God, from those who reject God's law to those who live in reckless abandon, joyfully keeping God's law and living for God's glory. Just like Jesus. Do you remember verse 9 in Psalm 40? Jesus said, behold, I have come to do God's will. Well, that's exactly what we're called to do as believers. We're called on a daily basis to declare, behold, I have come to do God's will. So we're called to glory in Christ's once for all sacrifice that washed away all of our sins, the big, the small, and the many, so we could be forgiven, redeemed, restored, reconciled, and made perfect before a holy God. All of that is true. We're the delight in that forgiveness, that reality, which motivates us to live for the glory of God, walking faithfully and joyfully in obedience to his commands, saying daily, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, you might be asking, what exactly does that look like? Well, as I close this morning, I want to give you three categories in which I believe we should always be striving to excel still more in obedience, just like the Lord Jesus. So three categories. Here's the three categories. Number one, love God. Number two, live for God's glory. And number three, love the lost. Simple, I know. But I think this is what it looks like to walk in obedience. Number one, love God. You know, I started this morning with John Newton. And I started with John Newton because he never got over his love for God. Why is that? If you diagnose why he had a growing love for God over the course of his 82 years of life. Why is that? It's because he never forgot where he came from. He never forgot what God saved him out of. He remembered his whole life that he was a sinner saved by grace. Which is why even at the age of 82, right before he died, he would constantly say, my memory's nearly gone, but these two things I still remember, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. You see, when we keep the forgiveness of sins at the forefront of our minds, We have this glorious, great, always growing appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think as we look back, we see with greater clarity where it is that we've come from. Which causes our love for the Lord our God to only increase over time. 
So let me ask you this morning, do you remember where it is that you've come from? Do you remember the reality of where your life was heading before he got a hold of you? What were you capable of? I know what I was capable of. I know what John Newton was capable of. Do you remember where it is that you came from? Do you spend spend time remembering where it is that you've come from? Do you wake up every morning astonished by the reality that God saved you, that God perfected you, and that God has committed to work in your life in very real and very practical and at times very painful ways, which are hard but necessary to prepare you for heaven? Do you depend on his daily grace to empower you to deal with the difficulties of your life? Or do you look to yourself? If you look to yourself, your love for God will go down. If you daily look to the Lord Jesus, remembering where it is that you've come from, and how he's absolutely essential to empower you to deal with the things going on in your life, then your love for God will only increase. May we never get over the gospel, and may we forever be amazed by grace, amazing grace, how great the sound that saved a wretch like me. Number one, love God. Number two, live for God's glory. You know, the author of Hebrews is right on the cusp of the application section of his sermon. So in just a few verses, chapter 10, verse 24, he's going to say this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? That's the day of Christ's return. So we're looking towards that day, and in anticipation of that day, we are gathering to stir up one another to live for the glory of God. That's what we do. So we gather every Sunday so that we never get over the gospel, so that we stir up one another to live for God's glory according to God's word, including the book of Hebrews, right? We're coming up to application, chapter 13, verse 1. He's going to tell us very practical ways to live for the glory of God. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. He says, be content with all that you have. You see, these are all very real and very practical commands on how to live for the glory of God. So we need to be in one another's life, encouraging one another Spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Reminding one another, here's the forgiveness that is ours in the Lord Jesus. Never get over the gospel. But out of motivation, out of a heart that is captured by this reality, we encourage one another to live like this. According to God's word, live for the glory of God. Number one, love God. Number two, live for the glory of God. Then last but not least, number three, love the lost. You know, I told you earlier about Billy Graham's daughter, how she shared the gospel with that woman on death row. What I didn't tell you is that that woman came to faith in Christ. And do you know what she immediately did with her newfound faith in Christ? She went and shared it with others. As a result, two other ladies on death row came to faith in Christ. Because this message of Christ once for all sacrifice for sin that forgives even the most wicked and vile of sinners, no matter how big or how small or how many were forgiven of all of them washed clean 
made perfect. That reality should capture our hearts to such an extent that we live in radical obedience to the one who saved us, including sharing that message with others, which should be the easiest thing for us to do. Freely you received the forgiveness of sins. Freely give. Offer that to others. May we be a people who know in the depth of our hearts that through Christ's once for all sacrifice for our sin, we've been forgiven. We've been redeemed, restored, reconciled, and we've been made perfect before a holy God for all time. May that reality motivate us to be a people who obey joyfully the Lord our God, that we love God, we live for God's glory, and we love the lost because we're amazed by grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we desperately ask that you would be at work both in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would glory in the reality and the truth that Christ once for all sacrifice on the cross has perfected for all time those who draw near to God through him. Lord, I pray that we would know that reality. I pray that we would believe that reality. I pray that that would be the conviction of our heart, that that is gloriously true. And may that move from our head to our hearts, that we would be captured by it, overwhelmed by amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. May we daily remember where it is that we've come from. May we daily glory in the cross of Christ. And may we daily declare, not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, give us grace to walk in obedience to your commands for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.